go. Um, let's start being the hour uh, upon us, 5.30. Um, welcome, everybody, to Mic Drop, your 5.30 p.m. Pacific Coast time, 8.30 p.m. East Coast time call-in show. This is uh, the opportunity for you guys to ask questions um, from me, who does campaigns for a living, hopefully offering some unique insight and some awareness as to the way we approach campaigns as political professionals. I want to make sure that you're getting the best data, the best crisis communications messaging, uh, an understanding of how the professionals are approaching all of these dynamics that so many of these politicians are facing at this moment in time. That tends to be the nature of the discourse and the conversation that we're happening. Thanks again for uh, making the show a success. Um, again, got some of those numbers in uh, just, I think, last week. Um, Avery sent them, maybe not last week, day before yesterday. I'm starting to lose my mind a little bit here, um, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But um, good, strong numbers for Mic Drop. Colin's happy. We're happy. Everyone's happy. Um, and the beauty, I think, that uh, we have developed here as a community is with this small, tight-knit community. I've gotten to know some of you guys in your areas of interest and expertise and focus. It's helped me, I think, broaden the discussion and get some of the questions that you want answered. And you guys really do help me drive the discussion, the narrative to where you want it to be. This is not a show for beginners. This mic drop is not a show for beginners. This is for people who are political junkies who want to get uh, beyond the Twitter feed, beyond the kind of, uh, you know, uh, quick hot takes and really understand what's driving some of the decisions that you're seeing happen. Um, and, and I'm happy to kind of offer my insight. Of course, there's, there's thousands of people involved in this profession. I'm not saying I'm any better or any worse. What I am saying is I've gotten to a point in my career because some of the work I've done over the past few years where I'm liberated to talk openly about the way we approach this stuff and, again, hopefully offer a little bit more insight on um, what's happening in the political arena so that you can have a better comfort level of understanding why some of these things that might not make much sense are happening, what the decision-making process is, and um, hope, obviously feel free to, to, to just disagree too. So um, just let us know. Lots of us are already somewhere on in the world. Yeah. We'll leave the chat open, too, unless it gets hijacked, as it sometimes does. I'm going to begin tonight, guys. I know we promoted the show as this discussion about Kevin, my friend Kevin from 30 years ago. You guys know I've known Kevin for some time. We'll get into that if you want. The Santos stuff, I think, is really fascinating. Uh, probably not for the reason that you guys think it is. We'll talk about that. We can talk about subpoenas. Um, I, I want to start this discussion because a lot of this uh, day began with and a lot of reporters have been both asking questions and pushing back on the on the U.S. Senate primary in California, the Democratic primary, because obviously you all know Katie Porter um, announced her intention to run for the United States Senate. And Dianne Feinstein is obviously a sitting senator. This really breaks protocol um, because she jumps in and forces the hand of Dianne Feinstein, who in all likelihood is going to retire anyway, probably should have retired six years ago. Can't believe it's already been six years since that primary. Uh, but here we are. Diane Feinstein, I think, is 89 years old. Um, she was too old to run last time. Uh, her husband has since passed away. A lot of people ask, why do people still kind of do this? And the reality is a lot of times, like a lot of people who don't want to retire, this is what keeps them going. Um, but, but Senator Feinstein, who has been a great Californian, 
uh, for many, many years, has done remarkable things in her political career, has really, really uh, driven the direction and the history of this state, if not this country, um, has just had an incredible exemplary career. I can't say enough about her. As a Republican in this state, Dianne Feinstein has been a great senator, um, but she needs to she needs to kind of have, turn over the, the reins of power to somebody different, somebody um, of another generation. Um, so Porter jumps into this thing, and that, that really tends to be, um, I think, sort of the fan favorite. Um, Katie Porter would win the Twitter primary. People people love love her. They love the shenanigans. She plays to social media. She's got the whiteboard thing. She's reading the book on the floor of the house with the cover. Um, how to not give a fuck or whatever it was, which is interesting, by the way. Why do you do that? And then two days later, you run. You announce you're running for Senate. Like I, I think that's a bad look. Um, I think it's it's part of her persona, though, and people who love her. Um, the way we work in, in tribal politics now is you and there's she can't do anything wrong. So whatever she does is people are just going to love it. So I'm sorry, full you know I may lose a few listeners here, or at least your your love for Mike Madrid may go down a little bit. But I'm going to be really direct here. I'm not a big Katie Porter fan, and I also don't think that she's terribly um, strong in this primary. And I'm going to explain mathematically why. Okay, so for Californians in the audience. I'd uh, love to especially hear your sense of this, but there's a reason why in California we tend to have a a uh, leadership from the Democratic Party that comes not just from one region of the state, but, but literally from a, a neighborhood, if you will, of around 20 different miles. Let, let, me, let me say what I mean by that. Dianne Feinstein comes from San Francisco. Barbara Boxer came from Marin County. Kamala Harris came from San Francisco. Nancy Pelosi was from San Francisco. Gavin Newsom was from San Francisco. Jerry Brown was from Oakland. Um, There's a reason why all of our political leadership, not all, but 90% of it over the past three decades has come from this area. And when I mean this area, I, I am saying San Francisco, Marin, Oakland, but it's literally like within 20 miles. This, these neighborhoods, these wealthier neighborhoods in the Bay Area um, dominate California politics. It's overwhelming. And the answer is why? Is this just coincidental or not? And the answer is no, it, it's not coincidental. There are some data-driven reasons why this is happening. And again, that's what, what I do is I'm looking for some data to explain some of these, what, what appear to be coincidental or sometimes anomalous behavior I tend to believe that there's a data-driven reason for most of the things that happen, even in the screwy world of politics, where uh, logic is kind of thrown out the window. So so why is that, right? I was asked by a number of reporters, some of you guys I think probably saw some of this going back and forth on social media, uh, why, why was I so bearish on Katie Porter's chances? So let me start from the 30,000-foot level and say this. There are nine counties surrounding San Francisco that we call the Bay Area here in California, okay? It's Alameda, Contra Costa, San Francisco, these areas that are kind of south of wine country. They include kind of the uh, wealthier upper middle class communities of like Walnut Creek, Danville, um, um, Dublin, some of the Livermore, some of these, these, these areas. 
and um, also include, obviously, the wealthy communities of San Francisco. Incidentally, San Francisco is becoming a wealthy community. We all know that. It's also becoming a whiter community. It, it's becoming less diverse, and it has been for a long period of time. What diversity does exist in San Francisco and in the Bay Area generally tends to be wealthy, well-educated. Uh, Non-whites tend to be Asian, um, both both from the Pacific Rim countries or from the um, uh, peninsula down in, in uh, the India um, subcontinent. So Rokana, for example, shouldn't surprise us. There's a very large contingency of API communities that run in those areas. Kamala Harris's uh, mother is uh, obviously, she comes from a biracial background, very well-educated parents, by the way, um, not your typical immigrant California community. That's not a pejorative. It's just just, just a, a, not surprising that um, her career trajectory began the way that it did where it did. Again, there's demographic and data-driven reasons for all of this. Bottom line is this. The nine area, uh, Bay Area that we know is one homogenous media market. It's extremely important because California is made up of six distinct large media markets. There's actually about 12 to 16, depending on how you cut it, but there are six big ones. The biggest one is the Los Angeles media market, and it's huge. It's enormous. It's second only to New York and Philadelphia, okay? but it covers a much wider geographic range than New York and Phillies. It's, it's just as expensive as the New York media market. And it covers, I, I would not as many people, but, but nearly, I mean, we're talking almost a third of the state of California is covered by the Los Angeles media market. It literally runs from Ventura County where I'm from down to San Diego, Orange County, Ventura, Los Angeles, Orange County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County. It's five of the six major Southern California counties are all in one media market. It's where 30% of the population lives. This is important because nobody covers political news anymore. A third of the members of Congress come from Los Angeles. 30% of them come from Los Angeles County alone in California. Los Angeles County has more members of Congress than 23 states, just Los Angeles County, okay? So it's hard for people to understand outside of California how enormous California is, not just in geography. It's a very large geographic state, but in terms of population, it is enormous. It's enormous, okay? We've got counties that are far bigger than most states, far bigger, okay? Like I said, Los Angeles County has more members of Congress than about 23, 25 states. Okay, when I was doing the, the, the race in, in Georgia, the runoff election after the 2020, and people were asking about those dynamics, Los Angeles County is bigger than Georgia in terms of actual voters. So these are races. I've been doing races this size uh, my entire career. So doing a national presidential race was not that big of a deal when you're looking at really five, six, eight battleground states, if you add all those states up, they're really not that much bigger than California. And when you break them up state by state, of course, all of them are smaller than California. So doing a national race for somebody from this state is, is it's really not that big of a deal. It, it's actually, a, I don't want to say a step down, but it's a step down in size of in terms of population. So sorry, I'm getting kind of in the weeds here 
and don't want to get too too under the hood here. But the, the, the basic point of the, that this discussion is this. If you look at the media market in the Bay Area, okay, and what, what I mean by media market is they share the same news shows on, on, on both broadcast and on local news coverage. So if I live in San Francisco or if I live in Alameda or Contra Costa County, if I live just south of wine country and I'm watching the local news, I'm getting news coverage that talks about Oakland, San Francisco, and those communities of what we call the East Bay, the bedroom communities where people commute into San Francisco and Oakland, okay? By the way, the population of this nine-county area is about a third of just Los Angeles County. It's, it's, it's big by most other state standards, but by California standards, it's really not that big at all. But it has a couple of key characteristics that really make it overly influential. The first is it's very well educated. It has the highest levels of college graduates anywhere in the state. It also has a very high degree, a high number of homeowners, which there's a correlation between home ownership and voters. Okay? If you own a home, there's a 70% likelihood that you vote. If you're a renter, there's about a 20% likelihood that you vote. So when we talk about things like wealth uh, disparities and income inequality and voter propensity, there's a science to all of this as political professionals where we look at the rate of homeowners because that's where the voters are, right? You go fishing where the fish are, you go to communicate where the voters are. And then the third dynamic is it's incredibly homogenous for a state that is as diverse as California is. This region of the state is like 70% white. Now, when I was a kid growing up, if you said wealthy, old, and white, you were talking about Republicans, okay? Rich old white people were Republicans. Not anymore, okay? Let me disabuse you all of that notion. If you look at the richest, oldest, whitest zip codes anywhere in the country, with a couple of very small exceptions, Orange County being one of those, California, these are some of the most progressive counties and zip codes in America. This is like New York, Manhattan, right? Connecticut, right? Areas around Martha's Vineyard and Boston on the, on the East Coast. On the West Coast, Marin County, San Francisco, Northern San Diego County. These are all areas, the, the, the central coast of California, right? The, the wine country of, of California on the coast, central coast we call it, or wine country up in Napa, Sonoma. These are all very, very progressive areas. They're also very, very white areas, and they're very, very rich areas, and they're very, very educated areas. So this nine-county area, Bay Area, around uh, San Francisco is the wealthiest, whitest, richest part of the state. I call it the gated community of California because it looks nothing like the rest of the state, nothing. But this is where the most progressive politics come from. These are the folks that are driven largely by cultural issues. These are not people that are affected by the economy. They couldn't give a damn about inflation. They don't give a shit about the price of gas because, one, they're probably driving electric vehicles. And if they're not, they're not worried about paying an extra 30 cents, certainly a buck, two bucks more a gallon. They, they could care less. That's not impacting their bottom line. These are people who are very high income earners and are not worried about paycheck to paycheck existences. They tend to pursue policies that are about cultural issues, okay? Gay marriage, very important for them. 
Climate change, very important for them. Legalization of marijuana, very important for them. Not at all concerned about the manufacturing environment, jobs issues, jobs, jobs, job is not an issue for these people at all. They could, they could literally care less. If you pull these communities, they are very different and distinct from everywhere else in California. Those are the two Californias, as we call it, right? California is a great place to live if you're wealthy, white, and own a home and have a college degree. If you don't have any one of those four criteria, for each one you don't have, life gets considerably worse. The challenge for California is most people don't meet any of that criteria, okay? There's a lot of younger, blacker, browner, poorer, non-college educated, recently migrated people to California who are suffering and can't make it work. I'm not gonna editorialize here, but you really have to understand the distinction as Peg is saying, the upper class versus the working class. The California Democratic Party, like the National Democratic Party, is overwhelmingly dominated by wealthy white progressives. And those wealthy white progressives bring their priorities to the table. Okay, I'm not making a judgment call on what they are. I agree with most of them, frankly, on these issues. But that's not the point. The point is I'm trying to get to the politics of the situation. These people love to vote. They live to vote. They're highly motivated by their own issue set and they vote overwhelmingly. Now let's go back down to Los Angeles, Southern California. Southern California is extremely diverse, extremely diverse. In Los Angeles County, only one third of the voters, not, not just the population, which is less than a third, but the voters themselves in LA County, the biggest county are white voters, a third, okay? Half of them are Latino, another 20, 30% are African-American, and the rest are a mishmash of the rest of the world. It's like the United Nations. We're an extraordinarily diverse state in certain parts of the state. But here's the kicker. Los Angeles County has very wealthy people on the west side, overwhelmingly white, and a small narrow a smidgen of them. If you know Los Angeles, basically, if you can see the ocean, your life is really, really good. If you're the west of what we, the 405 freeway. Everything else, 85%, which is east of the 405 inland communities, think life is really, really tough, okay? And there's not a lot of poor white people or working class white people in Southern California anymore. In fact, there aren't a whole lot of working class white people anywhere in California at all, with the exception of north of Sacramento. From Sacramento to Oregon, there are still working class, rural, non-college educated white people. These communities look a lot more like Montana than what you stereotypically think of as California. Because there's not a lot of people north of Sacramento. Where there are, it's largely farmland and agricultural communities, okay? Really important distinction. The bubble that looks like the East Bay area, the, uh, uh, it, it looks like um, uh, Massachusetts. It looks like Connecticut. These are wealthy, overwhelmingly white communities with high rates of home ownership. You go down to Southern California and it's extraordinarily diverse. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of poverty. Homelessness is completely out of control, completely. I think uh, there's just a declaration of, of emergency that the governor finally jumped in yesterday and is starting to throw hundreds of millions of dollars at it because we can't house our people here, okay? That's another social problem for another episode on another day. But my point is, these two counties, San Francisco versus Los Angeles, could not be more different economically. 
They could not be more different ethnically or racially. For the moment, they are the same politically, but you have to understand why. And the reason why they are voting the same way from a Democrat versus Republican perspective is because they both hate Republicans for very different reasons. In San Francisco, they hate Republicans for cultural reasons. They hate the social conservatism of the party. Okay, they hate the gun, con- the, the 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 Second Amendment stuff. They hate the uh, the the um, anti-gay stuff. They hate the the anti-climate change stuff from the Republican Party. Black and brown communities don't like Republicans because of the anti-immigrant stuff and the pro-white stuff. Okay, that's what's keeping this glue together. Okay. But it's kind of an unholy alliance. And this really shows up in primaries. Sorry about that long Mike Madrid wind-up. But again, that's why you tune into the show. This this understanding gets to the heart of what the challenge for the Democratic Party is going to increasingly be nationally. A concentration of white progressive leadership that is advancing white progressive issues, largely on culture and the environment, Versus its expanding base of voters, which are black and brown voters that are increasingly motivated by populist economic policies because life is really, really challenging. Okay, that's what is happening in the Democratic Party. That's the split in the coalitions that you asked the question about the Inland Empire or in Orange County. Orange County remains one of the few counties that still has wealthy white Republicans in it. Okay, Florida is another state that has some of that. Right, South South Beach and and the like. Um, the Inland Empire is the fastest growing Hispanic part of the state because what you're seeing is people who can't afford, or excuse me, either they can't afford housing values near the water, or, or 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 trying to escape the crime and poverty as they see it in Los Angeles County, are moving out into suburban Inland Empire. For those of you that don't know California, this is Riverside. This is uh, San Bernardino. This is moving on, taking the 10 freeway out to towards Las Vegas, out towards the desert where there's more land, not a whole lot in California anymore. There's a lot of traffic coming in that direction, but that's where the middle class is, is kind of escaping to. They can't afford or doesn't want to live in Orange County. Middle class people can't afford to live anywhere near the ocean anymore. That's all wealthy country. They're moving inland. Okay, those are... Those are some of the bigger dynamics, all the same media market, though. So here's a, here's the rub. Where you have the Bay Area voters who overwhelmingly vote, uh, have this high propensity to vote, right? Like these people live to vote. They're, they're watching the news. They're highly educated. They're very informed. And they're watching the same media, meaning they get to know their politicians because they're watching the media. In Los Angeles, you have none of that. You've got like 56, 60 different languages being spoke with very atomized media. It's extraordinarily expensive where it exists. So nobody knows who Katie Porter is outside of her Orange County enclave in her congressional district any more than they know who Adam Schiff is outside of his Burbank-Glendale market. Because again, there's 34, 35 members of Congress in that same county let alone the entire media market. If you go to the entire media market, it's more like 36, 38 members of California's delegation of the 54 live in the Southern California media market. All of them are competing for attention, okay? And they're not, you know, people aren't aren't watching uh, um, political news. People, 
nobody watches political news except for people like us that watch cable or are on Twitter and getting specific political news outlets. If you tune into broadcast, if you watch Channel 4 on, 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 on in Ventura County or Orange County or L.A. County, you're going to see maybe, maybe one political story every two or three days. Maybe. And it's going to be a scandal. It's not going to be good news coverage. It'll be the governor's budget came out, and they'll be talking about Sacramento, and then they're going to get to the late local car chase. Then they're going to cover sports, and then they're going to you know jump into the latest developments and what's going on in Hollywood or big DC stuff, okay, or in international news. There is no regional news coverage. It's too damn big. That matters in the course of a campaign because Katie Porter has no name ID. Adam Schiff has no name ID. You know what else they're struggling with? They're both white voters in the most diverse media market in the country, which means the base that they have to work with. First, they can't get their name ID out. And second, if they could, the actual tendency for Democrats, which is far more diverse in a primary than Republicans, that lane is not that big. But if you go north to the Bay Area, there's a reason why their candidates with higher name recognition are continually beating Southern California candidates, even though the population is three times greater. And the reason is because they vote regionally, they're more ideologically uh, in alignment, and they're three times more likely to vote than their Democratic counterparts in the Southern part of the state. So even though there are more people in Southern California, what we call the power of the vote is actually in the Bay Area. You guys following? This making sense? Am I getting too esoteric and too under the hood here? This is, this is what is so particular and unique to California. And it's what people outside of California, most people in California don't understand this because it's just political professionals like me that have been doing it for 30 years that understand this dynamic. You talk to any, any consultant, Republican or Democrat, and they can all explain what I just explained. This is part of our trade, okay? Most activists are like, Katie Porter, I love her. She's got that whiteboard, and she takes the Democrats to task, and she's always on, you know, Occupy Democrats on my Facebook page, and she's got a great Twitter feed. And it's like that's that has very, 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 very little impact in the outcomes of primaries. I'm not saying none because it is increasing every year. But it's extraordinarily low, and it's extraordinarily low in a state the size of California with a primary as complicated as it is. So what does that mean? You heard Barbara Lee today, right? Barbara Lee, by the way, is I think in her late 70s. She's not that much younger than Dianne Feinstein. I tweeted earlier that, you know, these baby boomers just can't give it up. Barbara Lee, Barbara Lee, by the way, I, I think most of you guys know this because you're political junkies, and most of you guys are kind of seven or left or left. Barbara Lee is, was, up until recently, up until kind of the AOC, Rokana era, like the most left-wing politician besides Bernie Sanders in the Congress, in the House. She was the only person, the only one vote against authorizing the war in Iraq, okay? She's a black woman from Oakland. She's a staunch progressive. And if you are a progressive's progressive, you probably love Barbara Lee. That's great. Good for you. She has the distinct advantage of a party that has moved further to the left, and she's also a woman. Now, let me say this, because this I'm going to dispel some more narrative here. Might upset some people. I don't give a shit, okay? Women 
have a distinct advantage running for office in Democratic primaries. Let me say it again, because you've heard this narrative over and over and over again about how hard it is to be a woman running for office. 56% of California Democratic voters, and I'm sure it's the same nationwide or it's really damn close, 56% of Democratic primary voters are women. That is a huge freaking advantage over men. Not a little one, a huge one. So all things being equal, you want to be a woman running in a Democratic primary. You do. Because that women, especially Democratic women, have a much higher likelihood or propensity to vote for women than not. So being a woman, you, you hear all the time, it's, it's you know, there, there are a whole lot of systemic reasons. I'm not going to get into those. I'm going to tell you the math and, and outcomes of elections tells us very clearly you have an advantage running as a woman in a primary, especially in the California Democratic primary. So there's two bits of, of fact you know here now. The first is you want to geographically live in the north part of the state. You want that. Okay, I just, whole diatribe I just gave you, that's where you want to be from the Bay Area. Second is you want to be a woman. Distinct advantage. Unless there's five or six women in the field and one man, then the women are splitting up the female vote and the male has the advantage. But all things being equal, women have an advantage in the Democratic primary. So two key things you really want to be to win in California. You want to be a woman and you want to be from the Bay Area. If you have those two things going for you, you're in the catbird seat uh, in order to get out. You also, I would argue, and this is just my opinion. I'm, now, there's far less evidence suggesting this, but I also think you want to be either white or you want to be Asian. And the reason why is because this is really going to shock and bother and disturb some people. White progressives vote for white people as much as white conservatives vote for white people. Okay? Let me say that again. It's going to hurt some feelers because white progressives really believe that they're different than white conservatives. No, you're not. You're not. White people vote for white people. That's the systemic part of the racism that people talk about. And just because your policy positions make you feel better, actual behaviors of voters demonstrate quantifiably that white progressives are just as likely to vote for a white candidate than white conservatives are to vote for a white candidate. All things being equal, you vote for people like you, okay? That's another reason why I'm just like, I've had it with the Katie Porter bullshit. It's just white progressive catnip. It's just people going like, oh, she's the best qualified. Oh, she's the best person. Bullshit. What you're doing is you're projecting your own identity into a party that is claiming it is not what it actually freaking is. Okay? Sorry. A little bit edgy tonight, but it's true. It's absolutely freaking true. Okay? If California, if not the most diverse, one of the most diverse states in the union, can't pick another senator that looks like its own freaking population, at a certain point, the Democratic Party has to start putting its money where its mouth is and start being the party of diversity if it's going to say it's the party of diversity. Otherwise, just stop with the bullshit because you're not, okay? If you got a Katie Porter in there, she's going to be there 24 years like they all are, right? Next 24 years, she's going to be there and you can have another white senator in this incredibly diverse state and in 24 years, we're going to have the same discussion about representation and getting voices in there. And we can have an honest discussion and should as to whether representation is actually the point 
or whether it's at the political perspectives that we should be looking for. I became a Republican because I rejected the idea that simply being Latino told me that there was a way that I had to vote, okay? I, I eschewed the idea of identity politics. Now, the Republican Party has become the biggest purveyor of identity politics. It's just white identity politics, and that's why I rejected that and been pushing against that, is I don't believe that's a good barometer. But if you're going to ask me politically, if you're going to ask me politically if representatives of government should reflect the people that they actually represent in as many ways as possible, I'm going to say yes. I don't think conservative politicians should be representing progressive areas. I don't. That's not representative government. Okay. I don't think 70% of our elected officials should be men when half of the population are women. I, I don't. Doesn't mean I'm prescribing what they should believe in, but I think if half of the voters are women, then half of the representatives mathematically probably ought to look like that. And when California is only 34% white, I'm sick and freaking tired of white people voting for white people and claiming they're progressive and they care about other people. But when it comes to actually freaking voting for people, they don't vote for anybody but people that look like themselves. And I'm not talking about Alabama. I'm not talking about conservatives in Mississippi. I'm not talking about Republicans in Georgia. I'm talking about white progressives in Marin and San Francisco and the most liberal parts of the state. That is white progressive voters, okay? All right, I'm going to try to calm down now. This pisses me off, and this is what we're going to be facing here in this primary, okay? This, this if, you believe, if you believe that we live in a country that has a systemic racist problem, which I believe that. I've always believed that. You know who else believed that? That dude right there, okay? I believe that, okay? I believe that America has always had a systemic racism problem. But with systemic doesn't mean the Republicans do it. Systemic means the system does it, okay? And if you want to work against that, then put your money where your mouth is and, and believe it and say it and do things that are different, okay? If you don't think that there are other qualified people that come from different backgrounds than a white woman from Orange County to be the champion for the Democratic Party, then I don't know what to do with you. Like, I mean, open your freaking eyes, expand your Twitter following and start reading something different other than the same, you know, bubble that you're in that keeps telling you that Katie Porter is somehow the best person that you can find in your primary. That's just absurd, which takes me now to Ro Khanna, okay? Northern Californian, non-white male to the left now, to the left of Barbara Lee, right? This dude's a burner. He was with Bernie Sanders. Dude's going to be a very strong contender. Why? Northern Californian. If Barbara Lee is in and Katie Porter's in, they split up the, that female vote, right? So now you got to start looking at some other, other uh, puzzle pieces to get you to a majority or at least a plurality in the Democratic primary. Kana's big appeal, first of all, high name recognition in his media market, which is extremely important, Silicon Valley, Bay Area, this is a place with a lot of educated, high turnout voters. Northern Californian, advantage. Man, not as much of a, an advantage, but somewhat because the, the, the female vote could be split. Okay? But what he also has is he will, in all likelihood, get the imprimatur of Bernie Sanders. 
Let's remember, Bernie Sanders beat Joe Biden in the primary in California. The California Democratic Party is a very left party. If Bernie Sanders can convince a good cadre of his folks to back Ro Khanna, which I think is the likeliest scenario, this dude's at the top of the list. Now, I, I don't agree with Ro Khanna on probably anything, okay? But I, 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 I'm, as a political professional, I look at the math and I'm like, that dude's solid. That dude's got a really, really good chance, okay? So that's where Porter sits. Barbara Lee, again, Bay Area, woman, advantage, except for the Porter stuff, splitting the female vote. African-American, not necessarily an ethnic or racial advantage because African-Americans are only 10% of the California electorate. They sit in about 15, 16% of the Democratic primary electorate. Okay. But, and this was, uh, Barbara Lee, uh, black voters hold it. How do I, I got to be careful on how I say this. There's a reason why Kamala Harris wins that primary, Right. There's a reason why Barack Obama immediately became, by the way, uh, a leading contender for president when he gave that speech on the floor of the Democratic National Convention in 2004. We'll leave it at that. We'll get into this in another in another episode later. Or I'll answer specific questions. But what I will say is they developed very astutely distinct advantages in their own democratic primaries, okay? The appeal of white progressive voters to black candidates specifically that that agree with them and their perspectives is something that we cannot underestimate. Doesn't work for Latinos, by the way. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna take a little side route here. Um, the fourth candidate, remind me to get back to this. The fourth candidate I'm gonna talk about is Adam Schiff. Because Schiff's gonna get in this race. But let me tell you about Alex Padilla, my good friend Alex. Okay, I've known Alex since he was 26 years old, and he was the L.A. City Council president. I worked with him with an organization called the League of California Cities. He was the president. I was a political director. He was really instrumental in negotiating against Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger at the time to help really alleviate some of the financial duress that cities were in. Phenomenal job. You'll never hear about it um, but because it, it, it's boring. But it really had a very profound impact on millions and millions of lives. I'm a huge, huge friend uh, or fan of Alex Biddy as a friend also, but but just a very big supporter because he, he supports working class people that are, are, you know, people of color, which is really, I think, the emergent part of what the Democratic Coalition really needs. Anyway, here's my point about Alex. And I've told, I've had this conversation with him. If Alex Padilla had not been appointed U.S. Senator, he never would have won. The reason why is, He's got two significant problems that were probably insurmountable. The first, from Southern California, from the L.A. media market. The second, he's Latino. Let's throw in a third, he's a man. Those are three really big, distinct disadvantages in a Democratic primary. Latino voters do not have not only the turnout numbers that are required of the largest ethnic plurality in the state, they are also not a reliable block, not as a reliable block as either black voters who overwhelmingly vote for black candidates or, and this is important, in Democratic primaries, white voters who vote for white candidates in Democratic primaries. 
If you put up an Asian candidate, if you put up a Latino candidate, if you put up uh, a white candidate, and you talk about diversity, you know who's going to win that race in a Democratic primary? Anybody want to guess? The white candidate's going to win, okay? Because white progressives vote for white people the same way white conservatives vote for white people. So if you don't believe me, ask Gavin Newsom. That's how he won. Gavin Newsom won that primary. I know because I ran Antonio Viragosa's campaign, the Latino candidate in Los Angeles. Gavin Newsom dramatically overperformed in all the wealthiest, whitest communities in the state because he's one of them. He's a rich, white, progressive dude. They vote for them. That's who they vote for. Okay? We don't want to think about that. Democrats don't want to admit it, but that's exactly what happens. Okay? That's just data. It's just facts. Does it happen all the time? No. There are times when there are times when Republicans will put up a candidate like Herschel Walker, right? They'll put up a black candidate in Georgia for other reasons, and Democrats will do the same thing. But overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, white progressives and white conservatives support white candidates. Okay? It's not even ideological. It's it's tribal. It's ethnic. Okay? It's about supporting candidates who reflect your worldview. <clears throat> So Alex never could have gotten elected. That's why his appointment was so important because no one's going to challenge Alex Padilla ever again. He can be in the Senate for 24, 20 or 30 years if he wants to. He's young enough to just be there forever. But the bottom line is Padilla would never have won a Democratic primary. He would not have. I mean, I bet, bet, bet the house on that. Okay. He, and I told him that over the years, I've known him for many, many years. He got appointed. It's the best thing that could have ever happened. He will now be there as long as he wants to. But the challenge of getting another candidate from Southern California where the people actually live in this state elected because of the dynamics I told you is very, very remote. Enter Adam Schiff, another white candidate, huge national fundraising capacity, Democratic icon because of the impeachment hearings. Um, by the way, this is really interesting. Uh, I, this is old school stuff too, but you know Adam Schiff when he won that congressional seat, he beat a guy named Jim Rogan. Anybody know who Jim Rogan was? Jim Rogan was the congressman who led the impeachment hearings against Bill Clinton. So there's something about Burbank and Glendale where these impeachment hearings are kind of definitive in this part of the state. By the way, Jim Rogan took over for a Republican member named Carlos Moorhead. Carlos Moorhead was one of the one of only ten Republicans in the House that voted for Nixon against impeachment, because remember, impeachment uh, proceedings began against uh, Richard Nixon on the House side, never got to the Senate side. He resigned first. But there were only 10 Republicans who, who voted with Nixon the entire way. Carlos Moorhead was one of them. Way off topic, but really peculiar part of the state. Somebody needs to write a book on it sometime. Impeachment managers and impeachment issues, uh, in the very few times we've had them in this country, always seem to run through Burbank and Glendale. Anyway, Adam Schiff jumps into this. Who does, who does Adam Schiff hurt the most, by the way? And what's his base? Let's just ask that like this is a college course. Who does Schiff hurt and who does Schiff help? Southern California, right? That hurts any reach that Katie Porter would have. Yeah, there you go. Hurts Katie, I think probably the most. Hurts Kana a little bit, right? Because it's a man jumping in there. If you have one man against Barbara Lee, um, um, and Katie Porter, if there's more women in the race, one man actually helps consolidate that vote a little bit more. 
Um, and he, he, you know, he's, he's got a national fundraising base. The guy's going to raise millions of dollars. So to me, Schiff and Porter essentially become non-players unless there's a lot of Northern Californians that really start to split up or complicate that base and, 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 and split up that vote. There's a lot of wild card potentials in this primary. And here's the funny thing about contested primaries. The bigger they get, as we say in the business, the bigger they get. And what that means is the more candidates start to jump in, the more likely the path is for other contenders because all you need is your slim sliver of votes to get you through the primary and be the top vote getter. It's hard when there's two people. It's harder when there's three people. Once there's four, five, six, eight people, it gets a lot easier, right? Because you're just trying to get your vote out. If you're a woman from Northern California, you focus there. If you're an African-American candidate, you focus there. If you're a white voter from Orange County, you focus there. And everybody's going to try to get their base vote out. And in doing so, the math opens up other lanes and more and more candidates are likely to get in. So I wouldn't doubt if the field in the Democratic primary for California Senate starts to get really, really big, really, really fast. Incidentally, there's one person that we're not talking about here. Any guesses on who that is? Maybe we talked a little bit about it, but uh, Diane Feinstein herself, like I said, I, she needs to go, but will she? I don't know. And what happens if she runs? If she runs in a straight up vote against one person in a bilateral field, she probably loses if it's a strong enough candidate. If she's running in a five or six way field, I think she probably wins. Now, again, she's 89 years old. She shouldn't be running, but that doesn't mean she won't. Okay, <clears throat> And very importantly, who she endorses is going to be very important. I don't know who she would endorse, but dollar to a donut, it's going to be somebody from the Bay Area because that's what the Bay Area does. Again, I'm going to run through the list of California's political leadership. You can say Mike Madrid's absolutely crazy or smoking something funny, but the governor is Gavin Newsom from San Francisco. Okay, He replaced Jerry Brown, who was the governor of Oakland. Diane Feinstein was the mayor of San Francisco also. Kamala Harris was the district attorney for San Francisco County, attorney general. She's from San Francisco. Nancy Pelosi lives on Knob Hill. She's from San Francisco. Okay? I could go over the list of the statewide elected officers. Most of them come from the San Francisco Bay Area or Northern California, where there are fewer people. The answer of why that is, I just gave you. There's propensity reasons. There's media market reasons. It's a little secret that most political professionals in this state know because it's so big and it's what we operate in. It's something that very few people outside of the state of California know, but now you know. And so unless there's any questions related to that or to that dynamic, I'm happy to answer any questions because I also don't want to suggest that that's all that's going to run. I think at least today, I think that this field gets pretty big. Okay? I think it gets – hold on. I actually had – uh, the call-in uh, feature um, closed, so it's now open. But if anybody has any questions related to the Senate race, go ahead and ask those questions now. I'll try to work with my throat a little bit here. We're doing – God, I'm already 45 minutes into this thing. God, I see I get, I get going on these things. Who the hell else do you guys know that gets this passionate about Democratic Senate primaries in California? I mean, right? That's just kind of how nerdy we are here. So I can – if there's no questions, I'll kind of move on 
to the speaker stuff because, as we all know, it's been a debacle. You guys have been following this. Um, I can talk about Kevin a little bit. We, we visited with him on this last show. Um, the last show we did was actually before he put the votes together. I was predicting that he was not going to be able to put it together. Okay, the numbers were moving in the wrong direction. But I also said something that I still do believe very firmly, and that is this. The worst thing that could happen for Kevin McCarthy would be that he actually puts the votes together and becomes speaker. I think it's going to be a nightmare for him. Okay, now, the good news for him is in politics, you always want to have the expectations low, and they are incredibly low right now. Okay, so any victories he starts to eke out, the momentum starts to look very strong for him. Okay. He began his speakership at probably the lowest, not probably, at the lowest, weakest position of any modern speaker in 100 years. The bar is really low, okay? So every success and every victory he has, and you can argue that the rules vote, which they carried by four votes, was a victory. Um, it is. I mean, if you win a vote, it's a, it's a victory. We can debate how big it is or it's not, but... The more victories, the more wins he's able to put together, the more momentum he's going to be able to build. And I'm not going to suggest that there isn't a likelihood, I'm sorry, not a likelihood, but a possibility that he ends up looking like a pretty strong speaker if he's able to weather this out or leg it out until the presidential campaign. But what I do know is this, this is going to be a nasty Republican primary. Trump is stronger than I think we believe he is at this point in time because he has a hold on a third of the Republican electorate. He's clearly weakened to the point where he's going to draw other contenders. And if you look at basically every aspect of the Republican apparatus, there, it's, a, it's, it's, it's in the midst of an actual civil war. It's not a debate between moderates and conservatives. It's a debate between establishment conservatives, establishment Republicans, I'm not going to call them conservatives, establishment Republicans and kind of populist Trumpists. And it's happening not just in the House, which we just saw on full display. It's happening at the RNC where Ronna McDaniels is, is, is facing, I don't, I don't know how real the threat is, but the fact that people are willing to challenge a sitting chair in such a highly visible, highly public highly personal way shows that there is a strengthening, galvanizing effort amongst sort of these Trump populists who are not afraid to take this on, to take on the establishment. In fact, taking on the establishment uh, helps you win even if you lose. And I think that that's what's happening with Harmeet Dillon in California, who's one of the challengers to Ronda McDaniel right now, is she's probably not going to put the votes together to win, but she will become a martyr for the far right in the process and probably get a job on Fox News or uh, become a full-time commentator, and that will elevate her position in the party even further, okay? The Trump primary is going to start getting away pretty quickly. Pence hedged a little bit on when he was going to get in. Pence will get into this race. DeSantis will get into this race. Uh, and I think that that increases the likelihood of a Nikki Haley getting into the race. That increases the likelihood of uh, um, the dude from New Jersey. Somebody help me out. Can't remember his name. Dude from New Jersey getting into the race, former governor. Chris Christie, thank you. Christie gets in, tells you how tells you what, what the chances are he's going to have. 
I, I think you have a five or six way primary. Okay. And that helps Trump's chances. The bigger the field is, the better Trump's chances because he's looking for, for a plurality in Republican winner, winner takes all contests. Okay. So all of these dynamics on paper make Trump look really weak. He doesn't have this 95, 96% hold iron grip on the Republican Party anymore, but he absolutely has that base vote with about 35, 36, 37%, which is about the number that he had when he won the nomination in 2016. As all of you will be reminded again, Donald Trump was only getting 37, 38% of the base Republican vote amongst Republican primary voters in 2016. Most Republicans voted against Trump or voted for somebody else in the 2016 primaries. The difference between Republican primaries and Democratic primaries is Republican primaries are winner-take-all contests, which means if as long as you're the highest vote-getter, you don't need to get 50% and you don't need a representative vote. You just got to be the top vote-getter with 16 candidates in 2016, Trump was able to move pretty pretty effortless, effortlessly through the nomination process, okay? That's really difficult. It's, it's not really difficult to do. It's impossible to do in the Democratic Party, okay? It's why Bernie Sanders took it all the way to the convention with Hillary, and it's why um, he, uh, Hillary did, did the same thing to Barack Obama in 2008, and it was why Bernie was ready to do that to Biden, except COVID hit, and it became an impractical um, possibility, okay? So hearing no questions, um, and I got off topic with, with Kevin a little bit, let's talk about Santos a little bit. Um, and I guess it just came out today that Santos uh, said he was, he was the star volleyball player now for Baruch College, when clearly he didn't play volleyball for Baruch College because he never went to Baruch College. Um, the, the question really becomes, how much of a headache is this for Kevin McCarthy? And I, I honestly, at this point in time, don't, I think it's probably the least of his distractions because there's only so much that he can do. Um, they can remove him. They can expel a member. You can't absolutely do that. But he did ask a good question when press was asked about that today, which is what is he charged with? Once you start expelling members from the House for lying, granted, these are very egregious, but once you start punishing politicians for lying, I mean, we're in deep shit. This is what politicians do. Not to that extent. I mean, this guy obviously has issues. George Santos has real problems, like psychological, mental problems. That's evident on its face. To be that shameless in lying about things of such gravity and such magnitude and such a highly visible, highly public way, not just, you know, saying things that could be parsed one way or the other, but but demonstrably lying about your entire life and and, and having the, 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 the shamelessness. The average human being doesn't have the ability to show up and give a speech after lying about where you worked, where you uh, went to college, your sexuality, your criminal record. Your, you know, the fact that you're now a gay man, but you were married to a woman in the past, like all of these things in a Republican primary, all of these things are, are demonstrative of somebody who's suffering some very serious issues. Not the least of which, by the way, is how the hell he can, yeah, his grandparents being in the Holocaust, his mother died in 
his mother's died twice. Once was at 9-11 and, 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 and she died somewhere else at some other time. Um, but the, the worst, of course, is going to be these FEC violations where $700,000 of, of his own money was moved into his campaign through personal loans. And the nature and the source of that money, I think, will ultimately be his undoing. If they can trace that back to foreign money, which I'm, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain that that's the source of that money, um, he's in a lot of trouble. He's in a lot of trouble. It'll be, it'll be far worse than just uh, sorry, George Conway was just tweeting something about this this topic on where he received payments from. If anybody gets a chance, take a look at George Conway's Twitter feed, see what he just what just posted, and jump back on here and let us know. But but basically, if he is taking money from foreign governments or foreign entities and then loaning that money to his campaign, uh, that's that's jail time. That's like orange jumpsuit. That's that's money laundering, and it's designed to to, to being it's being a conduit for foreign governments to influence our elections. And that's a big problem. There it is right there. Peg's exactly right. Look, 90% of the problems that we face go back to Russia, whether it's the rise of Christian nationalism, whether it's the intransigence of the National Rifle Association, whether it's uh, the influence of, of money in the 2016 election, as we're seeing that 700,000 goes to a Russian oligarch and then goes to, to, to Santos, to finance his campaign, all of this goes back to Mother Russia, okay? And what we're going to find is if we're able to finally get rid of the scourge of Vladimir Putin, which is why the fight in Ukraine is so important, but if we can get rid of Putin, so much of this destabilization of democracy goes away. Make no mistake, we're never going to go back to a time like the, pre, the, the pre-2016 the pre era. That's all, those, those days are gone. But the foreign influence of what we saw in Brazil on January 8th, Russian money. Guarantee you there's Russian money because they've been investing in evangelical Christianity fascist movements there for four years. Bolsonaro's been involved with it. Steve Bannon and Jason Miller have been a part of it. I guarantee you we're going to see CPAC. CPAC's got his own problems, right? More problems. Matt Schlatt problems. But CPAC is going to have been viewed as a conduit for Russian money. The National Rifle Association has been a conduit for Russian money. The Russians found the loophole of, of influencing money in our elections, and that was moving money, foreign money, huge petrodollars, unlimited resources coming from the Russian government directly or through oligarchs, I'll explain that in just a second, to finance political activities. That's how they compromised the American right. If you wonder why it's so impossible to get a gun vote put up, it's because the NRA is hiding the secrets of all of this dirty money that has gone through most House or a lot of House, I'm not going to say most, I don't know, but certainly a lot of House Republicans and Senate Republicans. Look at Ross Johnson. That guy's so dirty. It went, we may not find out what he was actually doing until after he's dead, but we will find it. Uh, the truth will come out, and 99% likelihood all of that money was coming from Russian oligarchs or from the Russian government itself. It's like the mob. Once you take that money, you are a part of it. And that being found out is far more dangerous than anything else that could happen. Okay? So the way this works is like a crime family is Putin controls the oligarchs. We keep thinking these oligarchs are these rich billionaires who made all of this money on their own. That's not what happened. It's like an organized crime family. 
is Putin, with the fall of the Russian Empire, seized control politically of the of the economic infrastructure and then doled out control of key industries to loyalists. Your job then was to do the dirty work of the regime. It's not unlike an organized crime family. These There's a boss and then there's underbosses. Below that, there's these capo regimes and then there's these foot soldiers, right? That's the standard structure of an organized crime family. It's exactly what Putin has built. Oligarchs, we call them oligarchs, there's this nice name, they're underbosses in a crime family. And as long as you do Putin's bidding, which means you put as many American people of influence on the payroll and you, you buy off the NRA and you, you, you finance candidates like George Santos and you, you interfere in the 2016 elections and you hire lobbyists on K Street, which should be the next scandal, by the way, is all the lobbyists that are taking Russian oligarchs money because they may not be they may not take Russia's money directly and be a foreign agent of that government. But if I work for Gazprom or if I work for some energy industry that is one of the oligarchs subsidiaries, three or four steps down, there's a ton, a ton of Washington lobbyists that are getting 50, 60, 70, $100,000 a month retainers. Let me say that again, because that's the kind of money that moves around on K Street, 50,000 to $100,000 a month retainer is not uncommon for that type of an industry. And there are a lot of lobbying firms in DC that are taking that kind of money because they're bought off and have to do the bidding then of the Russian interest that is essentially controlled by the oligarch, meaning it's controlled by Vladimir Putin. That's what's been going on for the past 10 or 15 years. We're just catching up to that right now because there are so many loopholes in a digital economy on how to get around old FEC rules that were created during the Watergate era in terms of reporting, you could, you, you could place Facebook ads and social media ads without ever being caught. That's, that's what was happening in 2016. That's what was happening in 2018. That's what was happening in 2020. That's what's happening in 2022. And not just here, it's happening all over the world, guys. Okay? So I, I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but every story you're reading coming out today is saying exactly what I have been saying on this for years. I saw this at the Lincoln Project. We were seeing things happen when we were doing that campaign that I had never seen before. And it was because there was nothing reporting, nothing reportable. The Russian government's not gonna fill out the right forms to place the ads that we were seeing. And there's this immediate recognition that they can't stop these guys. Our government doesn't have the enforcement agency to stop Russian or Chinese or Iranian money coming into our system. We never will anymore. That's one of the downsides of the digital age. There's too many ways to influence voters in our country through communications measures, which we used to be able to limit when there were just three TV stations, NBC, ABC, CBS, and a bunch of radio networks. It was easy then, we knew what was on it. The whole country was watching it. Now who the hell knows what information you're getting, right? And these are not organic things. The rise of Christian nationalism, the rise of evangelical extremism, the rise of, of Christian radicalism. We talk about Islamic radicalism all the time. We're like, how do these people get radicalized online? What the hell do you think has been happening in, 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 with, with Christian sects here in this, in this country for the last 10 or 15 years? It's radicalization. It's, it's politicization of religion for political purposes. 
And it's not just here. It's happening with Orban in Hungary. It's happening with the Italians who have taken over, the, 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 the fascist elements have taken over Italy's government. Marine Le Pen in France got 42% of the vote. The National Front used to get like 6 or 7%. They just got 42% in April of last year against Macron. You just saw an insurrection or violent attempt to overthrow the government in Brazil. Okay? That's evangelical Christian nationalist movements. It's not happening organically. It's a sophisticated, well-resourced, well-funded effort that all ties back to Moscow. It does. You can say I'm a conspiracy theorist. Say whatever. Google it. If you don't believe me, Google NRA Russian money. Okay? Our own government has tracked this down. Okay? AP has reported on this. Reuters has reported on this. You all know all these Republican members who are, who are complicit, who are spending the 4th of July in Russia. Like, what, 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 what is happening here, right? It's not that hard to piece the elements together. It's just happening on so many different fronts that nobody has put all the puzzle pieces together. As a political operative, it makes perfect sense. It's why Steve Bannon's involved. It's why Jason Miller's involved. It's why all of these players are engaged in this activity because we are in a time where political parties are now transnational. There's no reporting requirements that any federal government is going to be able to enforce ever again. The, the movement, the fight, is not between Republicans and Democrats for democracy, guys. It's not. It's between authoritarianism and pro-democracy efforts globally. That is the fight. That is the battlefield. It's the reason I went to Ukraine is because that, again, is where the front is in the kinetic war. If the Ukrainians are successful in destabilizing Putin's regime, it will allow the free world to breathe a little bit and get its bearings and stop the flow of monies towards undermining democratic regimes. That's why it's so freaking important. It's why Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene don't want any more U.S. dollars, resources, or weaponry going to Ukraine. It's because they want the rise of this Christo-fascist state. And when I say state, I don't mean the United States. That's a part of it. It's a global effort. If you don't believe me, look what happened in Brazil. Why is Viktor Orban from Hungary, a self-described Christian nationalist, going to CPAC conferences in Texas? Why is CPAC having conferences in Mexico and India and Brazil and in France? It's because they're coordinating all of the rights to push for this effort. And it's not because they're volunteers, grassroots activists. It's because there's hundreds of millions of dollars moving through a political infrastructure that is designed to, to increase and destabilize democratically elected governments. That's what's happening. <laughs> that's my show. That's my TED Talk, guys. Sorry, that's a long, long-winded way of, of kind of uh, getting off topic, as I sometimes do. Um, are there any questions? Because if not, we're already past an hour. I've been talking for a full hour here. There's got to be some questions. Go ahead and jump into the queue. Even some uh, regular folks, I think, have been not only listening intently, but not um, – not jumping into questions the way we normally do. How do we interfere with the manipulation from Russia is one of the questions in the chat. I mean, look, I, 
this is why this is why I'm such a passionate believer in what's going on in Ukraine. It's such a bigger fight than we realize. And it's so important to remember that this battle, of course, here in this country is between Republicans and Democrats. I get it. But if that's occupying 90% of your time, you're missing the battle because it doesn't matter if Republicans lose for the next 20 years on everything if, if we are destabilizing democracies all over the globe. The bigger fight, the more important fight is the fight uh, for Ukraine and the fight to destabilize Putin. And the Ukrainians are willing to do that work for the West. They, they will tell you heard Zelensky say it on the floor of the House. The reason why Zelensky was invited by the Democrats is because they knew they were going to lose a majority. They needed to give him a platform to tell the world, we will fight for the West. We will fight for these values. We will die for you. Just give us a fighting chance. Arm us. If you arm us, we will die for these values. We're not. You've never heard Zelensky ask for troops from any other country. Ever. He's not asking for troops to come in and fight the war for them. He's saying, give us the arms to match the Russians. If you let us, if you, if you arm us, we'll, we'll, we'll beat them. Out, outman five to one. We will beat the Russians if we have the weaponry to fight and we will fight the war for you. Yeah, it's a fight for us too, but we will fight for the West and we'll beat the Russians. And I believe them. They will. The big danger is if the Republicans in Congress stop the flow of money and stop the flow of weaponry to Ukraine, then Putin has the ability to retrench, get his footing, restabilize, reorient, and start moving forward aggressively while this apparatus he has built globally is doing the attack work like they did in Brazil a couple of days ago. It's not anomalous, guys. It's all coordinated. It's just that's the way the world works now. It's easy to it's Ann Applebaum, who's probably the premier thinker on fascism, wrote a great piece, great interview in the Atlantic. You guys need to read it. Go to the Atlantic, take it, read it. It's really quick. She did this interview. She's saying the exact same things I am. I'm not claiming to be an expert the way that she is. She's saying this is all coordinated. Okay. And if Ann Applebaum is saying it's coordinated, it's Ruth Ben-Ghiat. The, the, all of the premier experts on fascism are saying everything that I'm saying. They're, they're, or I'm saying what they're saying, okay? I'm not claiming to be an expert on this. I'm just a political operative. All of the experts on fascism are saying this is all coordinated activity. All the pieces are there. I, there's one thing I know. It's political movements. And I can tell, I can smell it when I look in the country or I look in this country whether or not it's being funded or not, or whether it's volunteer. Like, I know like that, okay? It's what I do. None of these efforts are just happening organically. What happened in Brazil did not happen organically. January 6th did not happen organically, okay? This shit is coordinated. It's very well-funded, and it's handled in a very sophisticated manner with not one or two operatives, like in a dark room, it's done with hundreds of people who are organizing to overthrow democratically elected government. It's bigger than we think it is. And yes, there's a problem with Republicans and Democrats. That's true. But the bigger battlefield is happening in countries all over the world. It's why I was hopscotching into different countries and helping out with these efforts. 
I'm trying to dial it back now because I just don't think it's good for me health-wise. And there's some other things I want to write on democracy here, working on this book you all know that I'm, I'm working on, which is taking a lot out of me. But th that's what what is happening. The world is transforming into a global, a truly global political arena where the forces are going to be a right and a left. The right will be authoritarian and the left will be more egalitarian that is trying to give people constitutional rights as we know them in this country, human basic human protections and votes in their government. Authoritarians are trying to attack that. That's the battlefield. And for the moment, it's going to take place country by country. Okay. It's a little bit different than what we saw in the Cold War, which was actual artillery flying in all of these, um, you know, agent countries, right? We were having these, these puppet fights in Vietnam. The Russians would go into North Vietnam. We'd go into South Vietnam. We'd fund it. We'd move troops. They'd move troops and we'd battle it out on these, you know, different battlefields. It's not the way it's going to look for the moment. And it's not just Russia, okay? China's watching. China's paying attention. Iran's watching. Iran's paying attention. The North Koreans are paying attention. There's an entire well-funded global infrastructure that's looking to do this. And it's why we need to be focused outside of our country. Because that's, thank you uh, for posting uh, the, the Ann Applebaum piece. Guys, read this. Read this stuff, okay? It's not just Mike Madrid talking crazy talk. This is, this is some of the best thinkers on the planet who focus on these things and who have deep, deep knowledge on this, who are writing books on this and raising the alarm bells. Yes, look, if Putin goes away, by the way, you want to beat the Republican crazy? If Putin goes away, Matt Gates goes away. Lauren Boebert goes away. Fox News gets a lot of the oxygen taken out of it. The whole right-wing media ecosystem goes away. That's what happens. So when I'm asked the question, what's the best thing that we can do, make sure Ukraine is funded because they're fighting the war. If Ukraine wins, the faster they win, a lot of the crazy goes away. I'm not saying there aren't social reasons why Trumpism is happening, but what I'm really saying is there's a shitload of foreign money backing this, okay? As I've said before on this show, Putin may be losing the kinetic war in the Donbass, He's losing the war in Ukraine with tanks and artillery shells and generals, but he's winning the global war against democracy. He's weakening the shit out of it. And he's got a ton of people on the payroll that are doing his bidding. And most of it is moving through nationalist organizations and nationalism. Anywhere you find nationalism, you will find radical religion. Okay whether it's the Ayatollahs using radical Islam in Iran and overthrowing the Shah in 79, radical religion, radical Islam was what motivated that. And if you look at what's happened in the Republican Party, it's radical Christian nationalism. It's using God as an advocate for your politics. That's fucking dangerous. It's fucking dangerous. And it's designed to create a caliphate Sharia law or a Christo-fascist structure in the West. That's the goal. That's what we're fighting against. So, yes, it's important to be worried about what's happening in Georgia and Pennsylvania and these Senate races and the House races. But for the moment, I'm just going to implore on the off cycle, I really need you to put your focus globally because that's where the real battle is. And who wins those wars are going to determine the strength of the battle here with the Republican Party. 
Guys, I've gone on way, way, way too long. I'm supposed to be writing uh, this book. I'm a few hours behind. Uh, I'm always a few hours behind. I still got to get a couple thousand words in tonight. I've been talking a long, long time. I've appreciated the conversation, even though it has been one way. Um, we will do this again next week unless something else happens beforehand. Peg, I didn't get to the Mexico-Canada-U.S. agreement with Biden's visit to the border, but I assure you it's not going to go away. Until next week, 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, we'll talk to you then. Thanks, guys.